Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. If you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you are with us this morning as uh, we sing and we pray and we sit under God's word. Uh, it is good for us to be together. God calls us to do this week in and week out because it is for our good that we would worship him. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a passage out of the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 9. Uh, Isaiah is in your Old Testament. It comes after the books of Proverbs and Psalms. Uh, if you are flipping around in your Old Testament and you hit another prophet like Daniel or Hosea or Amos, you've gone a little too far, go, go back a little bit more to the left, you'll, you'll come across... Isaiah, and we're going to look at Isaiah 9, but specifically over the next few weeks, we're going to look at one verse in Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, these four titles that appear in verse 9, the, or verse 6, excuse me, these four titles that speak of the coming king. And so if you would, let's follow along Isaiah 9. We're going to read verses 2 through 7 each week to give us context for uh, verse 6. Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do thank you that this morning we can come to this your word. We praise you that you have preserved it for us and that you gave it not only to your people long ago, but you have given it to us. And so I pray that as we come to this, that you would open our eyes, that you would unplug our ears, that you would soften our hearts, so that we would see the majesty of you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the writer Bill Bryson uh, has this wonderful memoir that he wrote about his, his uh, childhood called The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid. Um, have just have, have some of y'all read this? Um, just me and Jackie. Okay, um, so uh, it's a very, very uh, funny book. It's very uh, clever. He's a wonderful writer, and in, in this memoir, he writes about different occasions in his life, different things that occurred in his childhood. He writes about his father, who was a sports reporter in Iowa. He writes about his mom, his siblings, his family, and his friends. It's, it's quite humorous, but there's this one instance that he writes about 
about he and his family going to Disneyland. Now, this is in the 1950s, and so uh, they're driving from Iowa to California. They pack themselves into the car. They head off to Los Angeles so that they can go to Disneyland. And he writes about how excited he is and how much he's anticipating getting to see this place. But not only is he excited and anticipating this event, but so is his father. And he writes about his dad as they get to Disneyland. He says this. He says, in those days, speaking of Disneyland, it was considerably less slick than it would later become. But it was still the finest thing I had ever seen. Possibly the finest thing that existed in America at the time. He goes on, my father was positively enchanted with the place. With its tidiness and wholesomeness and imaginative picture-set charm. And he kept asking rhetorically, why all the world couldn't be like this? <laughs> it is a sense of enchantment, of wonder. He asked that question, why all the world couldn't be like this? That question, that rhetorical question, it's expressing a longing, isn't it? You see, his father had experienced something good, something pure, something whole, something light, and now he was wondering why all the world couldn't be like this, why all the world couldn't be picturesque and full of charm, why all the world couldn't be wholesome and clean, right? You've been to Disneyland or Disney World, there's not a speck of trash anywhere, right? Why can't all the world be clean like Disney World? <laughs> he's asking, he's expressing a sense of longing for something good, for something right, for something beautiful, for how things should be. We know that longing. The people of God knew that longing. The biblical story is all about longing. Longing for something that is right. Longing for something that is good. This is the first Sunday of Advent. This is the season of the church calendar when God's people historically have remembered that longing. Historically, the church has looked to those passages that point forward with longing to the coming Messiah to remind us of, of what it is that we desire. Ever since Adam's rebellion, that's what we've been doing. We've been longing, we've been hoping, right? We've been waiting for the Messiah to come because in his coming, all things will be made right. That, that desire for all the world to be like this would be even better than that. Right? Covenants were made and promises were offered. Kings rise and fall, and they're all moving towards this one day when Messiah would come. You know, of all those promises that, that, that express the longing that we have, one of them shows up right in our passage. In verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now this promise that Isaiah gives to the people, it comes in, in the context of, of a situation and an experience that would have created in God's people a sense of longing for this child. You see, this promise comes in, in the context of, of God's people wanting the right king and a good ruler and the savior to come and to reign. Isaiah is writing in the 8th century B.C., and he's speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah. So uh, if you remember from your Old Testament history, the, the, Israel, the nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. This happens in 2 Kings. And the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, the northern kingdom has turned away from God. And they are following after God in ways that he never commanded them to. They've set up alternative worship sites, if you will. 
See, God's people were supposed to worship at Jerusalem, but they're now worshiping in other places. And to make matters worse, they're following kings that were not of the Davidic line. That's the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom, which is often called Judah, is the kingdom to whom Isaiah is speaking. Now, Judah is still worshiping in Jerusalem, as God prescribed. Judah has a Davidic king, but many of these Davidic kings, even though they are of the line of David, aren't very good kings. In fact, they're bad kings. They're really bad kings, like the king that's over Israel right now. Now, he wasn't the worst of the worst, but, but Ahaz, the king over Judah at this moment when Isaiah is prophesying, Ahaz has been leading God's people astray. Though he is of the line of David, he's not a king that is to be followed. And to make matters worse, nations are pressing in on them. Nations are warring and attacking. In fact, the situation in Isaiah is so bad that he says the people are walking in darkness and they are living in a land of deep darkness. You see, the people are in need of help and of hope and they are longing for a king to come. And so Isaiah promises that he will. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, before Handel ever set these wonderful words to music, Isaiah uttered them to a people who were longing for goodness to be restored, who were longing for a king to come. And he comes in the form of a child. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that the hope that they have is riding on a child to be born. One theologian put it this way. He said that God's answer to everything that has terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of the world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. He goes on and says his answer, God's answer to the bullies swaggering throughout history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus, a child. The promised child is the promised king, and the promised king is Christ. And that's what this verse tells us. This verse tells us what this promised king is going to be like. There's four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. And so for the four weeks of Advent, these are the titles that we're going to look at. Each week, we're going to take a different title. And this week, we begin with Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. What does this title mean? Well, first, it tells us about the king's works. That's what it tells us. It tells us of the king to come, his works. Now, why do I say works? Well, I get it from that word, wonderful. Now, when we hear the word wonderful, we often, in our minds, we, we have the connotation of degree, right? If something's wonderful, it means it's, like, really, really good. Like, good isn't a strong enough word to say it, so we have to include this adjectival statement, it's so wonderful, right? This is how we often use it. And so when we think wonderful, when we hear wonderful counselor, we can maybe think that what this is saying is that Jesus was, like, a really, 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 really good counselor. Right? Like, that, that's maybe what we think about. It's just talking about degree. But, but actually, this word wonderful, it, it's pretty fascinating. It, it's not just talking about degree. It's talking about something so much more. Because what's interesting about this Hebrew word is that it's not an adjective. 
So this is where grammar actually comes in handy here. So it's not an adjectival statement, wonderful. Literally in the Hebrew, it's a noun, simply wonder. And so the most literal way to translate this title is wonder of a counselor or a counselor of wonder. Okay, that that still doesn't help us understand what wonder means, right? So if it's not wonderful, what does wonder mean? Well, Well, now when we look at how this word is used throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, we would see that it shows up 13 times. 13 times in the Old Testament, this word wonder is used. And every single time except for one, it is speaking explicitly of the miraculous works of God. So for instance... In Exodus chapter 15, we read, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That same word. Now, what are the wonders that are being spoken of in Exodus 15? Well, clearly from context, right, it has to be what God has just done in Egypt. The wonders that he showed when he brought plagues upon Egypt. Right When he went to war against the Egyptian gods and he brought frogs descending from heaven and he turned the river Nile into blood and he turned darkness when it should have been day. And when he led his people by his very hand through the Red Sea. Those are the wonders that Exodus 15 is talking about. And we know that that's what they're talking about because in Psalm 78, the psalmist writes, In the sight of their fathers, he, God, performed wonders in the land of Egypt. It's speaking of God's mighty works. Psalm 77, it refers to God's works against Egypt as wonders as well. And in Isaiah chapter 25, the prophet says that God has done wonders as a fulfillment of his plan. You see, when the Old Testament uses this word, it's speaking of the miraculous works of God. The things that only God could have done. And so what this title is telling us about Jesus is that the child who is to be born is and does the supernatural. You see, the child to be born couldn't have just been any king. Now, over time, um, Jewish scholars, particularly with the uh, rise of Christianity and the way that uh, Christians were applying this passage to Christ himself, Jewish scholars at times, to try and push against that interpretation, would argue that the child was the son of Ahaz, was Hezekiah. So remember, Ahaz is a bad king. Hezekiah is a good king. Hezekiah is seeking to lead God's people back, to to follow after the law of God. And so some Jewish scholars actually tried to say, well, Well, this child that Isaiah is prophesying, it has an immediate fulfillment in the son, Hezekiah. But as good as Hezekiah was, he never did wonders. Even though he was not like his father, he never did the miraculous. No, you see, he was only a man. Now, Christ is more than a man, right? Christ is fully God and fully man, right? These two natures hypostatically united together. We're going to kind of talk about that a little bit next week when we talk about mighty God. But Christ is is fully God and fully man. He, He is man, a child, but he is more than a man, right? He is the one who does wonders. I mean, think about 
the life of Christ, right? He did things like he would go up to dead bodies and touch them, like the widow's son in Nain. He would touch them and they would rise to new life. Jesus would look upon those who had been blind since birth and he spat in the ground and took the mud and rubbed in his eye and they could see. He said to the lame who had been lame all their life, get up and walk, and they walked, right? This is what Jesus did. He did wonders and signs and the miraculous day after day after day. And the most miraculous, the greatest wonder that he ever did was his redeeming of his people. I mean, John Calvin, the French theologian, said of all the miracles of God, the one that exceeds them all is the grace of God exhibited in Christ the forgiveness of sins. You see, as amazing as it was when Jesus calmed the storm with just a word, said, be still, and it was still. As amazing as that was, as amazing as it was that he brought people to life, the greatest wonder that he did was that he redeemed us, that he forgave the sins of his people. You see, Christ is the king that Israel and we have been longing for Because he does what no one else could do. He brings the wonder of salvation to our lives. That is his works. But this title also tells us of his wisdom. Tells us of his wisdom. That's the other side of the title. See, just as wonderful brings to it all sorts of connotations, so too does the word counselor. To our modern ears, we hear counselor and we think therapist, right? We think of couches, and we think of, like, quiet music, and we think about telling um, stories about our families and and of our struggles and of our fears and our hopes, right? That's what we think of when we think of counselor. We think of therapy. And let me just say, I am not disparaging therapy. (laughs) Counseling is very, very good. You all have heard me say how I personally and my family have benefited from counseling. So so everything I say, I am not disparaging it. This is why we spend time and money and resources to bring Blue Ridge Christian Counseling to to life here in Roanoke, right? We think it is good, but that is not what is talking about when Jesus is called the Wonderful Counselor. He's not talking about therapy. It's not saying that he he is just the best therapist that there ever could be. It's talking about something much more. You see, when this word is used in the Old Testament, it's actually often used in reference to uh, advisors to the king. And these advisors, they would come and they were filled with great wisdom. You see, you only had this job if you were wise. And so they would come and they would tell the king, what was the best way to uh, protect the people? What was the best way to govern the people? They would come with wisdom and they would utter these words to the king. They would speak wise instruction and teaching. But when we apply it to Jesus, it's saying that he is wisdom personified. It's saying that he is the epitome of what wisdom is. He is wisdom beyond all human understanding. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. And so think about that now. Think about those two sides to this title. Wonder, speaking of the great and mighty acts of God that only God could perform. Acts that are far greater than any human action. And when we tie it to this word counselor, which is speaking of wisdom, great wisdom, what we have is wisdom that is beyond human ability. 
Wisdom that is greater than human understanding. That that's what Christ is. You see, he is the counselor of wonder par excellence. His wisdom far exceeds anyone else. I mean, just think about the plan of redemption. Okay, so let's do a little thought experiment here. Let's say that God said to us, he came to a few of us, and he said, um, I, want, I want us to go back in time before eternity began, and I want you to help me come up with a plan to redeem the people. Okay, and so, so God says this to us, and so what, what do we do? We're going to grab all our best friends, right? The smartest people, the, the wisest people, the best advisors. We're going to get together, and we're, we're going to start brainstorming sessions, and we're going to do a SWOT analysis, right? What are the strengths and weaknesses, and what are, the, uh, what are the threats that might come about if we put this into place? And we're going to do some strategic planning, Right? Kids, if you were invited into it and, and you heard that there was a need of, of saving, you would maybe think of a hero. Right, That's what we need to solve this problem. And so you might go in your minds to, to Thor or to Iron Man or, or to Elastigirl right, from The Incredibles. That's what we need. We need someone like Elastigirl to save us, to swoop in at the last minute and save us and destroy all of our enemies. Right? We would come up with all these different ideas of the way to save the people. But in all of our planning, and in all of our thinking, we would never come up with the plan that God did. I mean, just think about it, right? I mean, who would have thought to take a child, born in an obscure town, to a no-name couple and make him the savior of the world by dying what at the time the culture thought of as a scandalous death? There's no way that's what we would have come up with. In a million years, we would have never thought this is the way that redemption would come. But that's the Christmas story. It's the Christmas story because the wisdom of God far exceeds the wisdom of man. Paul himself said that Christ is the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Now, Paul's not saying that God is foolish. <laughs> What Paul is saying is that what looks like foolishness to us is actually the wisdom of God. Jesus is wisdom personified. And it's not just the transcendent truths of theology and creation that he embodies, but he also marvelously applies that wisdom with laser precision to our lives. I mean, think about how he demonstrates his wisdom. I was thinking about Lazarus this week from John 11. You remember that story where Jesus' friend Lazarus is raised from the dead? Lazarus died. I heard a yes. Awesome. Yes. You do remember. Very good. Um, so Lazarus has died. He's in the grave. And Jesus delayed, remember, to make sure that everybody knew he was really dead. And so he comes into the town and he's met by the two sisters, Martha and Mary. Now, what's amazing is Martha comes out first, and she asks Jesus, she says to him, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And then a few moments later, Mary comes out, and do you remember what Mary said? She said the exact same thing. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, so think about this now for a second. It is the same family, the same situation, the same statement, and Jesus gives two very different answers. To Martha, he says, do you believe in the resurrection? And he gives this little 
has this little dialogue about the theology of the resurrection and the truthfulness of it and how it's going to come about. But with Mary, what does he do? He simply grieves. Same family, same situation, same statement, different answers. Why? It had to have been because Jesus knew exactly what Martha needed. And he knew exactly what Mary needed. You see, Jesus wisely applies his very word to his people. And he does the same for us. Jesus' wisdom isn't just concerning the transcendent truths of God. It's also the application of those truths to his people. Calvin, again, he says, in every respect, Jesus is the highest and most perfect teacher. I mean, think about it. Isn't it amazing? I was sharing this with the session this week at our meeting, that we can read the same passage a million times over, and the million and first time you read it, you see something new. I mean, every one of us has had that happen, right? You, you start reading the passage, and your eye just kind of starts glancing over it. You start kind of just moving on to the next verse because you've read this one again and again and again, and you know what happens. And then all of a sudden, you're like, where did this come from? right? Happens to me all the time. Now, why does that happen? It's not because all of a sudden, like, my hermeneutical skills have finally kind of gotten to where they need to be, or like, I I finally get this exegetical principle that I need to apply. No, it, it has nothing to do with that. It is God opening our eyes in that moment to exactly what we need to hear, and exactly what we need to see, and God applying it exactly to our lives in the way that we needed it to. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God by his spirit and accompanied with his word, wisely applying Christ's truth to our lives. That's the wisdom of God. That is the wisdom of Christ at work. And so we should receive his teaching with joy. And we should take his instruction from his word with thanksgiving See, we read of what he has done and who he is, and and it should cause us to marvel. He is the wonder of counselors, but that should cause us to wonder and be amazed at what he is doing and the wisdom that that, that he embodies. See, that's the king's wisdom and the king's works. You know, I began this morning uh, by quoting Bill Bryson's father, why can't all the world be like this? That sense of longing for a better place and a better day, a place that is not of this world. You know, that's exactly what Disney World wants you to long for. (laughs) This past spring, uh, my family and I, we went to Disney World. Not Disneyland, we went to Disney World. And it's still, you know, charming, and it's still pristine, and it's still uh, beautiful. And as we're walking along, uh, they, were, they were working, they were constructing a new ride or, or doing something, and so they had these walls put up that, that were pristine, right? Even their work walls, like their construction walls look nice. Um, and on, on the wall was a quote from Walt Disney himself. And I remember we're walking by and it caught my eye and I, I stopped and I went back and I took a picture of it because this is what it said. Disney said, I don't want the public to see the world they live in while they're in the park. 
I want them to feel they're in another world. He wants us to long for something that we can't have. But friends, where Disney gets it wrong is that our longing isn't satisfied in a place. And our longing isn't satisfied in a park. And it's not satisfied in imagination or make-believe. And it's not satisfied in an experience. But our longing is satisfied in a person. In a child who takes our longings and changes it to praise. To, in a child who, who came as the prophet prophesied, and he comes as our wonderful counselor with great works and great wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son. You sent forth your son to take on flesh, to be born of Mary, to live and to die and to rise again so that what we need, that of a Savior, would come. And so we praise you, we honor you, and we ask that you would fill our hearts and our minds with wonder, with majesty, with, with awe at what you have done. Renew in us a sense of thankfulness, a sense of gratitude. Stir in us a desire to see your wisdom play out more and more in our lives and for your rule to be made known in this world. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.